Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called The Same Yesterday, Today, and Forever. The title of today's episode is a little bit tongue-in-cheek because as we examine what we're going to talk about, you'll see that this idea of an unchanging religious orthodoxy or a religious dogma is untenable. Last week in the episode, The Difference Between Myth and Religion, I tried to redefine how we understand religion and specifically Mormonism in a context of mythological stories to bind a culture together. And how even if these stories aren't literally true or these rituals don't have literal value like we tend to understand, they do have spiritual or symbolic meaning that is, to my opinion, of far greater significance. In today's episode, I want to offer a different definition of religion than I offered last time. And perhaps these two definitions contradict each other. And that's okay. This might be just a different way to look at it. A simple way to illustrate how I want to redefine it today. An example that I've said at least once, the dramatic change in direction that President Nelson gave to the church in prohibiting the use of the term Mormon when describing the church or its members, and how that was a U-turn from the previous two prophets who embraced the word Mormon and tried to redefine it as being more good, or with the I'm a Mormon campaign that tried to redefine the narrative of what it was to be a Mormon to the outside world. This campaign was PR move to redefine what it meant to be Mormon to the outside world. When President Nelson came out and prohibited the use of the word Mormon, many people were confused. Some people just took it in stride. There was a wide variety of reactions. This small change illustrates something that has been a part of religion since the beginning of time, and that is... That religion is less a set of strict dogmas that are unchanging and more a conversation. Religion and religious texts are a conversation throughout time. Now, President Hinckley and President Monson are at a disadvantage because they cannot give their opinion on what President Nelson said about this change. Perhaps President Hinckley already did. I'm going to real quick quote from a 1990 General Conference talk from President Hinckley. This is from October, and it is the talk called Mormon Should Mean More Good. Here's what he said in response to some of the comments Russell M. Nelson made. And this is a couple paragraphs in. Six months ago, in our conference, Elder Russell M. Nelson delivered an excellent address on the correct name of the church. He quoted the words of the Lord himself. Now this quote is from Doctrine and Covenants 115 verse 4. Thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this is back to President Hinckley talking. And he's referring to President Nelson. He then went on to discourse on the various elements of that name. 
I commend to you a reading of this talk. Now here is President Hinckley's response. The Mormon Church, of course, is a nickname, and nicknames have a way of becoming fixed. I think of the verse concerning a boy and his name. Father calls me William. Sister calls me Will. Mother calls me Willie. But the fellers call me Bill. I suppose that regardless of our efforts, we may never convert the world to general use of the full and correct name of the church. Because of its shortness, the word Mormon, and the ease with which it is spoken and written, they will continue to call us Mormons, the Mormon church, and so forth. Now, this is a clear response to what President Nelson was trying to do back in the 1990s, and then a response from President Hinckley at the time with a very different opinion on the subject. Typically, though, we don't get to hear from the past prophets on how they would view the teachings of current prophets. And I'm not limiting this just to Mormonism. All throughout scripture, we don't have the benefit of knowing what a past religious leader, let's say Paul, for example, would say about the teachings of the Mormon church. Built in the co- into the concept of, of Protestant restorationism, and by extension, Mormonism, is this idea of bringing back the beliefs that were originally expressed by Jesus and the other prophets and people that wrote scripture. Built into that idea of restorationism is a conclusion that I think is flawed. Now let me, let me explain what I mean by that. In order for a restoration of all things to happen, there had to have been a set standard of these all things to have existed beforehand. What I'm getting at is, in order for the restoration to have happened the way it's described in any restorationist movement, there has to have already been these beliefs in the past, in antiquity. But when you study the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in their context, you'll see that this very same thing of this disagreement between President Hinckley and President Nelson is apparent in the scriptures. As a missionary for the church, I I made lists of scriptures to use when debating believers of different faiths. I had a list of scriptures I would use against Catholics, a list of scriptures I would use against Jehovah's Witnesses, a list of scriptures I would use against any other religion that I encountered. And what I would do is I would write these these scriptures down with a bullet point of what was said and how to use that in a debate against people from that faith. When these debates would happen with someone from Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventist, what have you, they would come prepared with their own set of scriptures and verses to defend their beliefs and their interpretations of scripture. At the time, I understood this to be them misunderstanding what was being said or taking it out of context. As I studied the scriptures more, I began to see them in a much different light. The scriptures themselves are written much the same way we have general conference talks and and discourse in the church today. They are from a wide variety of people, from a wide variety of time periods, with very different cultural, societal, and political influences. And all of these different things impact their beliefs and the way they write scripture. So going from one, one writer to the next, 
you encounter dramatically different ideas and concepts about deity. It is possible to take nearly any stance on anything and find a scripture to back it up. Because in the Old Testament and New Testament, you have just that. A wide variety of people giving a wide variety and oftentimes contradictory opinion on many things. What I am getting at is there was never a strict set of dogma that existed from the beginning of time until today. Religion is a conversation from religious leaders and philosophers, religious philosophers, frankly, from the beginning of time until the present, where each new leader, each new person gave their opinion on on belief and how to practice it. And then these opinions made their way into the canon. I briefly, in a previous episode, talked about the documentary hypothesis and how just in the first five books, you have a wide variety of authors contributing to the text and often contradicting each other. Let's do a quick thought experiment. We'll do a couple of these from a few different time periods to better understand what I'm getting at. And I think I'll go back in time. So start from the present and kind of move backwards and give one or two examples from the present day, one or two examples from the New Testament time, and then one or two examples from the Old Testament. Now, I already discussed the usage of the term Mormon, so that's a, that's a great one from the present day. And two more from the Mormon church, the priesthood ban, and polygamy. Now, these are big ones. They get talked about a lot, so I don't feel like I need to go into too much length on these, but we have previous prophets, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and many apostles talking about polygamy and referring to it as a requirement to enter heaven. Since the church has distanced itself from the practice of polygamy, it has stopped discussing it and no longer refers to it as necessary for salvation, even though it's right there in scripture. In Doctrine and Covenants 132, we have Joseph Smith Brigham Young adding to this conversation about religion, about belief, about how to be saved. And then we have modern prophets giving contradictory statements, contradictory interpretations of how to enter heaven. The same thing with the priesthood ban. We have quotes from Brigham Young saying that black members of the church will receive it after every single white member of the church has been born and received it. And only after that point. And then subsequently, you have other leaders of the church pulling back from that and saying that, that this was just Brigham Young's opinion. Well, these prophets are also giving their opinion and their interpretation of scripture. And it's different than the previous one. So there were a couple of examples of the modern day. Let's go back a little bit further in time. I want to talk about two influential people that dramatically altered the discourse around Christianity. Now, before I jump into this, I'm going to talk about an early church father named Augustine. I want to preface it by reading from the Articles of Faith. Now, this is Article of Faith number two. We believe that that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Built into this is an understanding of original sin, but an alteration of that doctrine. Original sin, as understood by the Catholics, 
is this sin that has befallen mankind and put the world into a a lesser state. In some religions, the blame is put onto Eve. And ironically, the Mormon church tries to say that they don't believe in original sin. But that is only in name. Because built into this concept of original sin is a fallen world. And because Adam and Eve transgressed, the world has fallen. And we are living in a world that came about because of that. I will say that Mormonism and Joseph Smith added significantly to this conversation. Whether you believe in what he said or not, his conceptualization of the plan of salvation and Adam and Eve's role in that plan is a very cool concept. It relies heavily on a doctrine that is not found in Scripture. It is not found in Scripture. So where does this concept of original sin come from? The doctrine of original sin dates back to about the third century, so between two to three hundred years after Christ is when you start hearing some some talk of this. But it wasn't fully developed as a concept and adopted into Christianity until an early church father named Augustine of Hippo. Now Aurelius Augustinus Hipponensis, <laughs> that's his that's his full name, but typically referred to just as Augustine of Hippo. He was born in 354 and he died in the year 430. He's a theologian, philosopher, he was a bishop of Hippo Regulus. It's uh it's in uh North Africa. It wasn't until Augustine that this this phrase original sin came into place in conjunction with all of these concepts. His is the concept that before Adam and Eve transgressed, there was no sin in the world. And so it's called original sin because that was the first sin on our planet. Now, this this concept of original sin could be an episode all of its own. It's fascinating. It's very interesting. But the idea of a fallen planet and a fallen, fallen state directly comes from these early church fathers discussing the writings of Paul and of Ezra and, and other um, apocryphal writings to come to this conclusion that that's what happened when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit. This addition to the conversation of religion, if you will, is fascinating. Interestingly, when Mormonism restored everything, they restored this concept that wasn't fully fleshed out at the time of Christ. So if you're calling it a restoration, at least this idea here was restored from the wrong time period. So let's, let's imagine for a moment that, that we are early Christians from the year, from say a hundred years after Christ, the year 130. We exist in this time period. We're sitting in church. We're learning about Christ. There will be no discussion of original sin because the concept hasn't been created yet. There will be no discussion of the fall of Adam and Eve because the idea hasn't been fleshed out. And this is what I mean by a conversation. Religion is a conversation 
spanning generations and all of human history. And when you go further and further back in time, you have less writings and you have less opinions and less established doctrines. So that the further back we go, there's less and less said about every single subject. Again, let's say we're in this, in the year 130, we're at a a random church throughout the Mediterranean, worshiping Christ. We, We are Christians. One of the other interesting things from this time period specifically is that there was not a canonized New Testament. At this time period, the only books of scripture from the New Testament that would be considered canon would be Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon. Now, there were a couple of others, and this kind of depended on, depended on where you lived. There was um, a man that I, I believe I've mentioned him in previous episodes, but Marcion of Sinope. Uh, it's it's um, probable that he had a copy of Luke and taught Luke, but it wasn't until the year 170 that you have some of the Gospels being considered canonical. And then as you go further in time, you have more and more things added on to the canon, clear until you get um, to the year 400 in that ballpark where you have a better established canon. Back to this, this idea, we're Christians from the year 130. The only things we have in the New Testament are a handful of the letters of Paul, and that is scripture to us. So many of the ideas and many of the concepts that today we take from the four Gospels or the book of Acts, those were not understood by and large, by Christians in the year 130, to have been doctrine. Yeah, perhaps you had a church here or there that preached one or the other, but as a whole, those were not considered canon. So there were, there were two examples of how this, this discussion about religious dogma evolves over time and the understanding of what is or is not truth about religion or about Christianity has evolved over time. I'll give two more examples, and these ones are interesting, but I'll, I'll jump to the Old Testament. Let's, let's say, for example, we are now jumping back even further in time, and we'll say we are Jews from about the year 700, and we have access to early copies of the J-Source story of the creation and the Adam and Eve narrative. In this story, Modern Christianity and modern interpretations of this story identify the serpent here as the devil. At the time when this was written, that was not the understanding, because pre-exilic Judaism had no concept of a cosmic evil opposite of God. The term Satan in Hebrew means accuser or adversary. And when it was used in the Old Testament in the earliest books that we have, it was more of a title that different people held than it was a proper noun of a person. So when we read Genesis 3 and we take it out of context, we we identify the serpent as the devil. When it was originally written, it was just that. 
a serpent. Now there's some symbolism and some dialogue happening between the Babylonian religion and early Judaism here because they're using the serpent, which is a symbol of the goddess Tiamat from from Babylonian mythology. And Tiamat was a, a destructive, chaotic creator goddess. And so there, there was some understanding of the people at the time that this was a demonstration that Yahweh is better or greater than these Babylonian gods, or that he tamed them in a better way than Marduk did. Because in the Babylonian traditions, Marduk was the one that, that tamed the serpent or killed the serpent. But in strictly in the text itself, it does not identify the talking serpent with any sort of supernatural identity. Interestingly, in a number of these earliest scriptures that we have, Numbers 22.22, it describes an angel of Yahweh is the one that's, that's bringing the wrath of God. In 2 Samuel 24, Yahweh sends an angel of Yahweh to inflict plagues, killing lots of people. There's many of these stories where what we would understand today as being perhaps the devil influencing the world were described in these earliest texts as an angel of Yahweh. And these angels of Yahweh were sometimes referred to as a Satan because it wasn't a proper noun. It was a generic noun. Again, this uh, Satan figure appears in the book of Job, but this is, this is a poetic book that was probably written during the Babylonian captivity when, when God is looking for someone to um, be this accuser or adversary, he describes the in, in Job 1, 6 through 8, he describes the sons of God presenting themselves. And then he asks one of them, the Satan, again, a generic noun, to be the accuser. The, the idea and the concept of Satan was developed a little bit later. This was it probably came about during the second temple period. So after Babylonian captivity, after the Persians liberated them and sent them home and they rebuild their temple. This change and reframing of the concept of Satan happened after captivity. There are many scholars that hypothesize uh, an influence between Zoroastrianism and Judaism during captivity. One of the interesting things about Zoroastrianism was it's one of the first religions to have like a cosmic oppositional force to their good God. So instead of instead of saying that all goodness and badness comes from one deity, they say that all goodness comes from this God and all bad things come from this God. And it's this oppositional force. Some scholars that hypothesize this say that during captivity, the Jews would have been in close proximity to believers of Zoroastrianism, and they would have taken these same concepts and incorporated them into Judaism. And then we have this concept of Satan being an opponent of God. It doesn't happen until a lot of the Jewish pseudepigraphic works from the Second Temple period, particularly apocalypses like the Book of Enoch, where they, they describe a Satan figure as a cosmic opposite of, of God. Place ourselves in the year 700 BCE, and every single book of scripture, basically outside of the Pentateuch, in one form or another, the first five books, 
did not exist. They didn't exist. So to go back in time and say that these people believed all the same things that we believe today as Mormons, and that Mormonism is a restoration of all things, is erroneous. Now, I will concede that that perhaps, and I've heard it described this way on a few occasions, perhaps it's a restoration of disparate things from different time periods, but when we read the scriptures and we try and put modern interpretations and modern understandings on the ancient world, we take it out of context. We misunderstand what they understood from these writings. While it is important to read a text and gather your own interpretation of it, it is important to understand how it was interpreted and understood by the people that it was intended for. Now, this has been a very roundabout way to describe what I think a better definition of religion might be. Religion is a conversation that spans vast generations of time. When comparing early scriptures, early church fathers, or early writers in these scriptures, we don't have the benefit of knowing what they, what opinions they held on later writers. For example, we don't know what Isaiah, Isaiah 1, would have thought about the writings that are attributed to him from Deutero-Isaiah or the hypothesized third Isaiah. We don't know what first Isaiah would say about these writings because they happened so far, so long after him, he never read them. So we don't know what he thought about them. The same thing goes with Jesus. We don't know what Jesus thought about the writings of Paul or what Jesus thought about the doctrines that Paul taught and that Paul claimed that Jesus spoke. We don't know because we don't have any first-hand writings of Jesus. That comes to a surprise to many people when they're first studying the New Testament. We don't have a, a single first-hand written account or anything from Jesus himself. So we will never know what Jesus thought about what Paul taught. We will never know what Jesus thought about what, what Augustine taught about the fall of Adam and Eve. We'll never know what Jesus thought about what Joseph Smith taught or Brigham Young or the current prophet of the Mormon church, Russell M. Nelson. We will never know. Perhaps that came out a little strong and perhaps it even offended some believers in the church that might be listening. I want to do a second thought experiment. And this one I want you to think about and try and come up with maybe your own answer to what that might look like. Let's say that God talks to prophets. Okay? We'll just say that that's the case. Since there are dramatic differences and contradictions all throughout Scripture, if a prophet could ask a question of God and get God's opinion on it, would the church look anything different than it does right now? If the prophet could go and ask God his opinion, let's say, for example, on what God thinks about LGBTQ plus members of the church, what would God say 
I'll, I'll ask a different one that perhaps we've gotten two different answers from because I, in my opinion, the church will give a different answer on that concept in the near future. But right now, as it stands, they don't have a comfortable concept of it yet. If the prophet could ask God if black members of the church could hold the priesthood and were able to gain blessings in the temple, what would God say? According to Brigham Young, no, not a chance. But according to modern prophets, yes, of course they can. This idea of if they can talk to God presents a problem. I discussed it a little bit in the episode, The Source of Morality. This idea of God speaking directly to his prophets presents a problem, not just for the modern church, but for the church and the scriptures from the beginning of the Bible all throughout the end and going all the way to the modern day. We do not have a consistent story told. There is not even a consistent story told about the life of Christ. So, as I said in the beginning of this episode, the title, The Same Yesterday, Today, and Forever, is a little tongue-in-cheek. Because if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the scriptures are clearly a production of man. And every church from the beginning of time is also a production of man. That does not mean that you cannot believe in God. That does not mean that you can't find value in a church or a religious system. That means that the influence of man is in every religious organization and every scripture. As I was introducing this episode, I said that it might contradict my previous episode, but I, I really don't think that it does. Last week's episode, I talked about religion as misunderstood mythology. And today, I defined religion as a conversation about doctrines and dogmas spanning vast generations of time. Could some of these prophets and religious leaders been inspired by God? Of course. But if they were, the concession needs to be made by the believer that not everything they said comes from God. When we come to understand religion for what it really is, we can view it in a much healthier way. So when we see events like the recent Elder Holland talk that has been discussed by many different people, so I didn't feel the need to go too far into it myself. The Elder Holland talk, for those in the future that are listening, Elder Holland recently gave an address to BYU, and it was not kind to the LGBTQ plus community and encouraged hateful rhetoric. When we understand religion and understand religious leaders to be men giving their own opinions, perhaps inspired sometimes, perhaps not, we can look at a situation like this and determine for ourselves, whether we're a believer or not, when the church leader has it wrong. If we define God as a loving being, exclusion would be the opposite of a loving God. I know I talked about a lot of different things today, and I gave different examples from a wide variety of time periods. Consider it only a primer on many of these subjects. I didn't go into too much detail. I didn't give too many dates or statistics or even quotes. Just consider it more of a primer on these subjects. 
that I, I may or may not delve deeper into down the road. You may have noticed that I released the episode earlier this week than I have previous weeks. I'm currently switching to release my episodes earlier in the week rather than later for my own personal scheduling and and uh, and for managing my time during the work week. Religion has been a part of the culture of humanity since the beginning of recorded history. I don't see it going away anytime soon, but my intent for episodes like these last two is so that we can reframe what it is and what it isn't to better understand it. And to, even as an atheist or an agnostic, still find value in some of the teachings. Or, as a believer, to be able to look at it and gain the personal responsibility of determining what is or is not from God. Thank you for listening today. I hope that you have an excellent day.